So, welcome back to uh, the uh, first session after, after lunch um, on social development, learning from multiple voices. Uh, it's a great pleasure to bring together and to chair the, the panel. My name is uh, Gareth Jones. I'm Professor of Urban Geography here at the LSE. Uh, I've been working off and on in Latin America, a little bit in Brazil, um, and presently running a project which is sort of tangentially, um, if you like, sort of relevant to uh, today's uh, talks around commodification and representation of violence, uh, including in Brazil, uh, but also transnationally in uh, parts of the Caribbean and in the United States. Uh, so I very much look forward to hearing uh, what all the speakers have to say. Um, we've got uh, in the five uh, presentations and hopefully uh, ample discussion and questions afterwards, um, representation from a variety of organisations and institutional perspectives, uh, speaking across from Brazil uh, to the United Kingdom and perhaps even more specifically and closer to home for me to South London, uh, a part of the world that doesn't get a high representation at the LSE, uh, it has to be said, so I'm particularly pleased to get South London on the map uh, as the periferia of, uh, of London. Um, I think we'll also, hopefully, it's always risky that the chair puts down his or her own agenda here because then speakers proceed to ignore it. Um, but I'll try a little bit and at least put out my hopes for the next uh, hour and, uh, and, and a bit. I hope we hear something across the presentations about sort of different methodologies um, towards interventions uh, with, uh, with people around disadvantage uh, socially, economically, politically and culturally. And perhaps we'll hear more by way of contrast with this morning's session um, a different approach to the sort of intensities of, uh, of intervention um, and for that matter also I think the consistency of intervention between civil society and business organisations uh, and, and people uh, uh, in conditions of social disadvantage. Uh, consistency rather perhaps more or in addition to sustainability uh, in that context as well. Um, I hope also we might at least perceive, even if we don't directly hear about, um, a sense that we're operating in this session at a slightly different scale, uh, less at the scale of the state and of the nation-state and at a fairly macro level, um, but here very much at the city and probably more the community and the individual uh, level of, of disadvantage and social development. And I'm particularly interested if we do get some discussion around the relationship between interventions at the individual scale and the relationship with disadvantage and perceptions of disadvantage at the community scale. Often those two scales not necessarily in tandem uh, with each other uh, when uh, social policy and, uh, uh, and development are uh, in train. Um, I think I'd be also quite interested to, to think about disadvantage and social development as something more than indicators and variables, um, and actually to think about it in terms of, uh, shall we say, more about sort of stigma or approaches to, uh, against stigma, and in particular, therefore, moving on to the sort of the effects um, of, of reductions in stigma and basing uh, uh, improvements about people's vulnerability and confidence and so forth uh, socially and in the wider urban 
uh, public sphere. And lastly, perhaps we might be able to touch upon, who knows, um, around the politics of social development, which was there in the morning uh, in one sense, um, but here I think across the various speakers, hopefully we'll get some sense about the sort of politics of advocacy and lobbying uh, for social development uh, where young people or people in disadvantage are concerned, uh, around mobilisation, a sort of grassroots and bottom-up approach uh, to intervention, if you like, rather than relying on the state uh, and the official sector, uh, and also uh, representation from the business and the private sector, and also uh, collaborations at a transnational level uh, between civil society in the UK uh, and Brazil. Um, each speaker has been asked to uh, address you for around about 15 minutes, and from the very far end there, I'll do my very best, poorly located, uh, to keep people to uh, a modicum of, uh, of time, and therefore hopefully we'll have some uh, opportunity for questions and, and discussion. Um, I've asked the speakers to come up in the order in which they uh, are on the, on the programme and to introduce each briefly, rather than go through their uh, institutional affiliations, which I think they'll tell you about in part in their, in their talk, I'm just going to mention their networks and accolades, their prizes. Um, I don't think I've ever been at the front of the room with so many prize winners uh, and, uh, and, and network operators before in my entire life. Um, so let me just uh, firstly introduce Nehehiza uh, from KUFA, uh, a social organisation uh, in Brazil, particularly in Rio de Janeiro. Um, and to jump straight to the prizes... Um, Neha uh, has been involved in hip-hop and hip-hop radio uh, programs in, in Brazil for, for many years, including uh, hip-hop radio program for Kufa, Hip-Hop Kufa, uh, and has been winning prizes such as the Hutus uh, uh, Prize for Hip-Hop in Latin America, uh, prizes through Afrohege, uh, and, uh, and, and so forth with, uh, with some great success. Uh, Moving along, we have Camilla, Camilla sorry, uh, ba Batman Gelich. Uh, got that done. Uh, Batman Gelich, uh, who many of you I think will know as the CEO of Kids Company, uh, a, a, an influential uh, and significant uh, uh, player in, in social developments in, in the UK. Um, and here again, wait for it, uh, a whole series of personal and institutional accolades. Uh, from prizes uh, which include, and this is just a synopsis, uh, being named one of the 100 mo most powerful women uh, in the United Kingdom by uh, Radio 4, uh, but she's also an honorary commander of the Order of the British Empire, uh, a CBE and an honorary fellow uh, of UCL, uh, competitors up the road. <laughs> it's all in good fun. Um, Moving further on, we have James Baderman uh, from the organisation in English of uh, Fight for Peace. Um, James has been working a, a considerable amount of time in the, in the UK and the international uh, civil society sector uh, across a range of NGOs and organisations uh, and uh, uh, has been an advisor to one of, one of the important ones there, uh, an organisation called Beyond Sport, uh, which uh, he... Uh, uh, helped to, to, to found uh, and uh, in 2006 uh, was awarded the Enterprising Young Britain Award by the former Prime Minister uh, Gordon Brown and I'm sure his 
uh, enterprise has continued uh, from that point at least uh, onwards. Uh, Luis Roberto Pérez Ferreira um, is, uh, again, uh, a prize winner in various ways. He's been awarded various human rights activist uh, accolades um, and through uh, his organisation, or the organisation rather that he represents, Grupo ABC, um, has worked uh, with uh, a range of networks uh, in the corporate and international sector, uh, from communication companies through to UNESCO, UNICEF, UNAIDS, uh, the Bill and, uh, Bill and uh, uh, Melinda Gates uh, Foundation and Amnesty International. And lastly, uh, René de Silva dos Santos uh, from Portal Voz das Comunidades in, in Brazil uh, grew up in Complexo de Alemão, uh, which I think many of you uh, will know, and is the only representative on the front table here, I believe, uh, who has represented their country in some shape or form at the Olympics, though it doesn't say here whether he won, um, but uh, let's say that he probably did very well, um, uh, representing Brazil at the London Olympics, uh, but has also won a host of prizes. The, the, the pardon? He was, he was carrying the torch. Okay. Uh, a very important role in, indeed, uh, uh, symbolically and actually... Um, he, he won a prize in the innovation category of the, uh, the Shorty Awards Award uh, and uh, has made, uh, won a prize in the Make a Difference Award from uh, a global newspaper. Um, as a different sign of networking compared to some of the award-winning and organisational links that other speakers have, uh, uh, René uh, is an act- activist through social media and although it doesn't give us his hashtag here, Um, and maybe we can find it out. He has apparently more than 300,000 people following him uh, in social media and in newsprint. So uh, uh, an advocate in in wider ways uh, than most of us can possibly imagine. Without further ado then, if I pass over to uh, Negahiza, very welcome, this please. And... uh, Good afternoon. Good afternoon. It's a great pleasure to be here. Firstly, I like to say I'm very anxious because I think this is what keeps us alive and also with our feelings coming out, being able to speak and feel this anxiety and have our foot on the ground and be humble as well. It's a great pleasure to be here. We talked about this research. I want to say who I am. I'm Nega Giza. My name is Gisele Gomes. I'm 37 years old. I have two children. I'm a widower. And, pardon, sorry, I'm a widow. And uh, I, I come from a family from divorced parents, separated parents. And we lived on the streets. We were homeless. And through an experience to find a new home, 
this difficulty is where this moment of difficulty is where my life changed. When I was 12 years old, I understood what the world was. I I started seeing what I was doing, where I was in the favela, in the hills. Uh, you know, I was trying, living around the forest, trying to build a home to myself, to my brothers. I have four brothers. It was myself, my mom, my brothers. We were trying to build a home in the hills. And this experience made me mature from this, this community leadership. I heard about politics, citizenship. The issue of democracy, as Professor Gareth mentioned, human rights. So through this summary uh, as a person uh, and through the leaders in the community, from a very young age, I like to compose. I wrote texts about the world, essays, and then I recorded a record. And it w I had the strength to really see the world with different eyes. Also, my father wanted me to read a lot, so I loved reading newspapers. I start reading comic books. And then from then on, I went into books. When I was uh, growing, I realized I was reading about history, about black people in the world, in Brazil. And that, that strengthened my inner soul. So later on, I could see that I, I could contribute to change the world. So when I didn't have a home, When I lost my brother, he was involved in drug trafficking. So they were very important for my life. They brought pain, but pain brought hope. And this hope is now present every day when I need to renew this hope. I am here today, so this is a renewal for me to be able to talk about our initiatives with a small number of people. Now is they are all over the world expanded. And when I found hip hop and then I had my record, I met other people who believed in what I believed, MV Bill and also other colleagues. And people asked me, how can you work with men for such a long time? I say that I have something male inside of me with Atraigi as well. Um, so we think alike. Um, And we reached, want to reach the same aim. So that's why we've been working together, having this dialogue and building everything we have been building. It's just a step towards the future. We still have a lot to do. We received many rewards. We are alive. We have hope that we can do something, not isolatedly, but together. I'm going to talk about Kufa. Um, we already are working as a charity for 12 years. I think we've been working for 15 years. And when Bill called me, I needed to dedicate myself to something else apart from what I was doing in my community, in the radio, community radios. And through the hip hop, I needed to move on. And I saw... Kufa, some a change, people who wanted to cause a type of revolution. We were young people talking about with a lot of aggression to the government, and we judged the behavior of the government and of business 
and we wanted to have a conversation. Perhaps our lack of knowledge made us really nervous, and we were not able to dialogue in a better way to say what we wanted, to demand the things we needed. We talked a lot, but we couldn't ask for these things. And with time, we started to talk through meetings, a group of young people in a very small room, and we talked about a number of issues. We've dreamed a lot. We wanted to do many things, but we had nothing very clear. Oh, let's start a library, as if things were very easy to bring reading to people. And I see that now. This is a challenge for me. I always say to my daughter about reading. I show her so that she can enjoy and become interested by reading. But it is a challenge. It's a challenge for us to encourage people to do the things that we believe is a way to open our minds and to stand up and have a position in society. And that's why we started to start a library. We wanted to have an audiovisual library. And we had a vision about things which weren't, in fact, that easy. There were it was important to consider them. We talked about recording our history a lot. As Sandra, in her research, looking at um, uh, Afaregi and Kufa, talking about things through our own words and looking at a point of view of approximating the, what's called, uh, the education to us, and she has this perception of the things that we want. And we can see now how important it is to record our own history. We didn't have any records. We didn't have a voice uh, uh, to be able to talk for ourselves. And something that would last for the rest of our lives, for our children and for the future. Perhaps today, this doesn't matter so much, the result of this work, but in the future, this will bring a, a basis, a foundation for the work we're doing now. I believe this. And so we were able to think about that we needed to record everything that we did, the audiovisual, to uh, record our images. We went through public archives. There weren't very many meetings uh, about meetings of black people, about people who lived in the favelas. So we prioritized the audiovisual records and also the idea to register through photographs by writing all the material that we produced. This was something that we're still doing today, and it is very effective. Kufa is an organization, is the central um, favelas union. Why are you giving that name, they asked us. You want to be like a workers' union. I think what we really wanted is to do things that were very different, do very many different things. We didn't really know what we wanted to do because every time we were talking about a different type of things, but we wanted to do things that we wanted to touch the world and make sure that we could have people who could reproduce that, the things that we were doing, which is happening now. We work with sports, our methodology, I always say, We've managed to improve the way we work because of our partnerships. Roberto is here. He has contributed a lot. Marlova has always helped us a lot from UNESCO. And the partnerships with the government, we've always had the partnership with the government. 
we have always been true to us, but we, we, we people say that we are linked to them, but we, that we are able to be us, to be original, to be transparent. But we also are humble enough to listen and to learn and to get knowledge, to be able to move forward together. And I think Kofa has done a lot because of our partnerships, who strength, they strengthen our project. We have a number of commercial private companies and public companies which have been with us and have strengthened our work. And we are aware that we can have to learn and bring learning to the favelas to show how things should be done. So, to show how people are doing this, not just to teach, but to talk to us and to have an exchange, because it is an exchange. We're always talking about exchanging. We're talking about exchanging and dialoguing with people from different spheres and different areas. We can only learn and grow. And when I'm talking about growth, I'm not talking about myself, Giza, who's talking to you here. Oh, people say, gosh, Jesus is going to London. She's going to talk in the LSC. Wow. This is not so chic, so great. When you start talking to different people, you see that it's not so amazing. Let, I won't be speaking any, slum to, any slang today, but I will speak formally. And the way I speak today now and being able to talk to people through the readings that I've done because I haven't been able to finish my, my education, but through reading, I have managed to talk to people, learn about presentation. Now, all this brought me a lot of learning. It's what I bring with me and talking and experiencing people. And if uh, somebody has something good, I'm saying I'm going to get hold of that because I'm not a stupid person. So I'm going to take that to me so that I can have that. And I'm always going to be myself. So the idea of exchange and exchanging knowledge is very important. So it's, it's not so ama amazing to be here. This is something that I will learn and I'm going to carry on with, carry with me all my life. So I'm telling my children I'm here and they want to know everything about here. So it would be great to leave a legacy for my children and to other children, because I've always said this a lot, to do, to intervene in society, to do a revolution. It's not to think about the same way we were thinking. It's in Kufa, it's not people from my family who are working there. My daughter does participate in some of the workshops there. She does basketball, she does football because she feels part of all that. They're part of our space, and so they feel part, and they're the sons of this, and my son used to be there with me when I was working at Kufa. They are part of all this, and I hope that they will continue with this. But when I say that there's nothing amazing about this, because you're not doing something for yourself, for your family, for a small group of people who will be benefited, but because this is wide-ranging, it's for a lot of people. It's a lot of people who will be benefiting from this. The work that we do every day, that Kufa does every day with people, going, doing sport, um, getting involved with culture, all this happens everywhere. What we have, many other NGOs do too, but our difference, which I always highlight and I examine all the time, 
when I uh, come here, I think, what is our differential? It is to discover every day by the people, by the residents who need an opportunity. We need and we have this credibility and we need to know what people want. This is what's so important. Perhaps this is a question that the government for a long time, nowadays we have a better dialogue, but for, for a long time the, the government were not able to ask that question. What do people want and how do they want it? This has always been far away from us. So we have this idea that improvement comes from listening to what people want, to pay attention to what people want. So we want to become closer to people and try to understand their minds and how they see things, the type of criticism, so we can share our knowledge and bring down uh, the amount of aggressivity and and my time is over. I love when my time is gone. So I've got three minutes now. I've got a sacred th three minutes. I'd like to emphasize, therefore, this wealth that we have in our institutions because we listen to people, because we feel people. And another thing I'd like to highlight from our work is that we like to talk about many, many, many things with lots of detail. So we get somebody to sit down and you're going to listen about how the black movement works, how people behave in theaters, how you have to ask for the rights. That's not how we do things through theory or in a studied way. We try and put this through in the details on the everyday life experience. I say that I, uh, I, my rules goes through the way that people rule. And people say to me, Jesus, you was, you was, you're this and that and the other. And then I have to, I think about this, and then I have to recompose myself and have this position that people expect from me as a leader to be the face of an institution which is providing lots of hope. So people want things. And they want to be able to get to new spaces. And I feel that there are lack of opportunities, lack of incentive, lack of having an idea or understanding how politics work in our country. When I hear the minister speaking and speaking so well, explaining so well the Brazilian reality, and to come to London and see how things work, then we are always fighting for a country that is more able to speak to the people, a country that wants to be really transparent, to have access to information. And as Kufa, we are not shy. We have learned to knock on the doors, to present ourselves with our father under, the, the, under our arms, say, we're from Kufa, we've got all these things. We, we're no longer shy. It's part of our organization, know how to present ourselves, know what we want to demand. All this makes a difference. And we've been discovering this every day and very quickly because time goes very fast. And we can see that what we've done has been little and we still have a lot to do when we have a seven-year-old. And now we see that person as a 14-year-old or when we have a 15-year-old and then now in the army. And they come and they say, you've changed our life. 
and they treat me as if I was their mother. They have their family, but they talk to me in such a way and put such responsibility onto me as if I was part of their lives. It's, it's like, oh, it's like a nephew. Sometimes I, I, there's so many people I don't even remember. But I really feel this feeling of responsibility that what I had best for me was distributed and given to everybody. And I think that's our mission for the world. I see it as a mission. I bring a certain, a certain level of religion to me. Favela is my religion, is my life, is where I grew. I went through very different times as a favela resident, even not having nowhere to live. Now I have my little place, which I bought. But I value this a lot, and I value the mud which I used to step because I'm still stepping now because it's where my head is, where I keep my feet on the ground, where I know what I want. And I know that things don't have to get better just for me, but for other people, which is more than just going out and asking for justice. But we have to understand the rights that people have. So we're here to encourage people through our projects. We work with street basketball, with football, with music, with theater, with dance, with break dance, with graffiti, with large events, sometimes we do some very large events to make the action and the activities of the young people well known. We do a number of things and then many other things we'd like to say, but we it's through doing all these projects and having access, giving access to all these things and to be able to put uh, past knowledge as a citizen so that this happens and they become citizens very uh, strong in my country. People are always saying I have so much to say, but this is what I'd like to say after question, uh, the questions I can say more. And I know that I'm also very naughty, so I'm not going to speak so much. Thank you very much for listening to me. for taking, making all this really accessible for us. I'd also like to protest that you did not announce my award as a prima ballerina. I'm very disappointed in you. <laughs> all right, then. <laughs> it's an absolute privilege to be here, especially since Sandra, I think, is... I would describe her as a genius because she has the capacity to bridge the really gritty realities of inner-city environments to the really refined worlds of intellectual narrative. And I think very few people can do this really authentically, maintaining the genuine DNA of the organizations that they observe and clarifying their value in the narratives that they need to clarify in academically. So it's with a deep sense of gratitude that um, I'm here, and I'm only here because you wear dresses that are very colorful, okay? 
Um, so can I ask you not to take any photographs of me while I'm talking because I have a bit of a neurological challenge so I forget everything I'm saying. You can't even take photographs while I'm talking because then I can't filter out your camera. Relax. I'm here to entertain you. I'm going to tell you all about your brain in a minute. Okay. So I've got 15 minutes um, because I can't read clocks. When it gets to what hand should I stop there on that clock? Oh, okay. Okay, you can't help me then. 10-2? Okay. 10-2, I stop. Okay. So, what I wanted to say to you is that Kids Company supports some 36,000 children, young people, and vulnerable adults in very deprived and often very violent inner-city communities in England. I know people wouldn't think that was possible, but believe me, there are ugly, ugly ghetto environments in this country, and they rarely really get talked about, and the ugliness resides in the level of violence that the inhabitants of these communities are having to endure, and they have to endure it in conditions of shame because no one is really talking about what is going on. I think Brazil in many ways is ahead because it's having the discourse about the challenges. But Britain, in a very designer way, is hiding the challenges that uh, many vulnerable communities are enduring. And I ended up uh, kind of working with a group of exceptionally vulnerable children and young people who had been impacted and have been and are impacted by what one would call gang violence. But I don't want to call it gang violence because I think that is a red herring. I want to call it survival. Survival. And the reason I want to call it survival is because when we define it as just gang violence um, and we describe it as socially abhorrent constructs, what happens is we don't understand how intelligent the adaptation is uh, and is needed in order for these children and young people to be able to survive in these communities, i.e., I would describe their violence as survival behavior that is an intelligent adaptation and not as morally flawed behavior which is what people like to refer to it, even though, uh, you know, compared to an environment that is calm, behavior like that can exhibit itself as antisocial. In the settings that it's happening, I would argue that it is necessary. And this is what I want to share with you, why this happens. At Kids Company, we've ended up creating uh, a community a sort of island of safety by having centres at street level where all the professionals are under one roof, from psychiatrists to psychologists to teachers, artists, musicians, hip-hop, um, any, anything that is going to bring out people's talents but also address their traumas. Kids hear about us on the streets they make their way to our street level centers. They receive an assessment from our staff. And then we start actually addressing all their needs. Just to give you a sense of it, 
Uh, recently, UCL carried out a piece of research with us where they found that one in five of the children and young people they looked at had been shot at and or stabbed, with 50% witnessing shootings and stabbings in the last year, with one in four of their immediate family members and friends having been shot at and or stabbed. Incidents of sexual abuse, and sexual abuse, I mean not just sexual abuse within the family home, but violations and humiliations uh, of uh, involving sexually sadistic acts that these kids are exposed to within the community, that sort of violence these kids are experiencing at the rate of 15 times more than controls in the neighborhood. So even within the neighborhood, there are levels at which children are exposed to violence. So what I want us to think about in the short time that I've got with you is to become a little bit more sophisticated uh, in our narratives around this. I think we need to understand that when children are growing up in conditions of extreme violence, there is a systemic assault on their development, but there are also systemic feeders into their capacities for violence. So rather than thinking of it and what tends to happen, because we have very siloed academic structures, you know, the geography people describe one thing, the psychologists describe another thing, uh, the socialists describe another thing, whereas actually the truth is that all these separate narratives apply to create conditions of violence and violent acting out amongst vulnerable children and young people. And issues of social equality are, of course, an exceptional driver as well. But the bit that I want to look at, because I only have a brief period of time, is the changes that take place in these children and young people's brains and their biology as a result of being chronically exposed to conditions of fright, which then results in the brain and the biology adapting itself so that it can address the violence and the sense of terror that is exposed to. And these changes, I think, are part of the reason why some of these young people can become quite lethal in their capacities for violence. Now, I want to emphasize that I am saying the drivers of violence don't come from one avenue, but I'm just taking this avenue to show you what can happen if you leave children and young people in exceptionally vulnerable conditions. And I want you to think of two sets of young people in this construct. One group I call the initiators of violence, and the other group I call the imitators of violence. The initiators are often children and young people who have actually also been catastrophically let down within their family homes. They've either had incredibly poor attachment relationships because their carer has been exceptionally vulnerable, and on top, they've gone on to be either sexually or physically abused and chronically violated. And what happens is that from a very young age, even in fact as toddlers, these children's barriers 
to violence become eroded and they develop a normalization of escalating levels of violence because they see it around themselves all the time. And sometimes this is intensified by the use of illegal substances that adds to the trauma, the developmental trauma that these children and young people are experiencing. Then this sort of young person develops and then gets into the community. And within the community, maybe other children who haven't been violated within the family home, but who nevertheless, because of lack of social capital around them and in, in the neighborhoods they're in, are vulnerable and depleted. And there isn't a, a strong resilience wrapped around them by virtue of a strong family situation, maybe money or employment. So already they are fragile. And what happens is the really disturbed child, the initiator, starts attacking these vulnerable children because these initiators hate vulnerability because when they see someone who's vulnerable, it reminds them of when they were very small and they continuously got attacked and they weren't able to take revenge. So they've internalized this notion of vulnerability as a human failing, a sort of disgusting human failing. So when they see a really vulnerable child, uh, they are disgusted by that vulnerability because it sort of reflects back at them a sort of weakness. And often they want to attack the other vulnerable party so that they can obliterate them, but also confirm to themselves that they are finally have made a shift from being the victim to having the capacities of the perpetrator. Because often models of potency and power in violent environments reside in idealizing the violent person because the violent person gets to command the space, tells everyone what to do, and isn't stopped. So if you want to survive in these challenging environments, your capacity for violence has to be really enhanced so that you can be safe and your reputation for violence has to be high to send the message around to other people, don't bother attacking me because my revenge is going to be powerful. When our vulnerable child got attacked several times and continuously, he or she gets fed up and makes a decision in a way to actually become as violent as the initiator, but initially to mimic it, i.e. it's not biologically so driven, it's not driven by very early childhood experiences, but it becomes a sort of mask that the child puts on themselves so that they can equalize with these violators in power, develop a reputation for being violent in the service of hiding behind it and maybe surviving better. And as one gang leader told me, what began as a mask over my face to protect me took me over and I lost my identity, my authenticity, and I became something completely different. And what you then get is these two types of young people operating in these ghetto environments, trying to survive as best as they can, and consequently, certain significant changes begin to take place in their biologies. 
often with the violator, the initiated child, having these changes at a much more significant level and more intrinsic, and the imitator child having these changes at a much milder level. And just to go through quickly what these changes are, because I don't have any time now, is um, this. Okay. You need the front part of your brain to calm down the emotionally driven parts of your brain, your limbic system. The front part develops as a result of the quality of attachments that you've had, and the ability to calm down is given to you by your attachment figures. If you've had poor attachments, already this area is quite vulnerable, and your ability to soothe yourself and calm yourself is slightly diminished. Overexposure to fright hormones results in this area of the brain, the emotionally driven parts of the brain, becoming quite dysregulated electrically and chemically, and consequently there's always an overdriver coming from here which this part of the brain can't quite calm down enough. As tension builds up in here, what often can happen is that children and young people can seek violence as a way of evacuating tension. So there's actually compulsion, a biological compulsion, to drive minimal tension to extreme acts in order to get the post-violence exhaustion, which often these kids believe is actually rest, i.e. the whole trajectory of energy management and emotional management becomes disturbed as a result of these exaggerated experiences of terror that these children and young people have. Then what happens is that uh, this dysregulation here continues, but also as these children go on to be traumatized, significant traumatic memories get stored in here uh, as a result of uh, the fright hormone freezing them. And then you only need three or four characteristics in the outside world to, to mimic the characteristic of this trauma. So if you were abused by a tall man uh, and battered, if you see a tall man on the bus and he starts shouting at you and he's glaring at you, then that's enough to trigger the memory of the abuse you'd experienced as a child by the tall man and the whole brain area can become very agitated when this area becomes very agitated, it shuts down. When this area shuts down, and then you start operating from your brain stem, which is basically has in it a 45-minute repertoire of exceptional savagery. So I'm going to race through now. Here, I want to show you. This is the corpus callosum above the emotionally driven parts of the brain. This area of the brain is really responsible for appropriate decision-making, balancing out the right and left side of the brain. In conditions of extreme neglect, this doesn't develop, so you get the emaciation of the structure, but also you get these black cavities that are actually lack of development. This is the most urgent human development issue out there, violence is actually, and neglect, is changing the biology of the brain and it's changing potentially our gene expression. We know that our genes give the potential for, um, let's say, kindness and cruelty. 
If you're in an environment that's very cruel, then what happens is aspects of your gene expression that deal with cruelty upregulate in expression, and epigeneticists believe that it can get passed on to the next generation as potentially baseline genetic programming. So I would say if you think climate change is a big problem, you've got another hidden one here, which is actually the hidden developmental damage that is emerging as a result of large numbers of children and young people having to survive in conditions of violence. The power of love, that's why she's so important. Because in conditions of loving and attachment, and kids can get initially attached to centers and environments before they get attached to people, the brain acquires a resilience because it's released a range of chemicals that make it resilient against stress. And you can see this now in scanning where someone can be put through uh, scanning machines exposed to narratives of stress and their brain doesn't react so much if those necessary chemicals have been released. And that's why community programs that are long-term attachment-based are the key recovery strategies for um, assault like this. This is Debellis who's done an enormous amount of research into the fact that the brain continues its development, and if you put intensive programs of recovery in place, that there can be significant changes uh, in relation to how the brain then adapts to recover. This is the problem, everyone. The brain, the limbic system, tells the adrenal glands to release fright hormones, which then overdrive the brain, and people who are in conditions of extreme fright can get stuck in this loop of actually constantly secreting fright hormones and not being able to come out of it. That's why achieving some kind of community safety and meeting basic social needs are really, really important. This is the impact it has on the architecture of the neuron. You can see up there a neuron with lots of branches coming out. Then the branches allow the neurons to connect to each other and create the fabric of your brain. But in conditions like this, the neuron is emaciated because the acid of stress burns the branches, but also it doesn't develop because you don't have enough interaction. Therefore, there is minimal connectivity. Evidence of the importance of the frontal lobe for managing pro-social behavior. Those who can't manage it have diminished activity in the frontal lobe. But in our research with UCL, we also found the kids had got so exhausted by being frightened that they'd started developing a, a, an acquired psychopathy where they couldn't feel anymore and they couldn't tell the difference between emotions. But after 15 months of being in our program, through scanning again, the brain recovery was evident. And this is the model, really quickly. Address conditions of fright, make the person safe, so that the adrenal gland stops producing the fright hormones, build up the front part of the brain's capacities to control emotions and make pro-social decisions by building up attachments, and then think about the individual's talents and their capacities and their future. And that's why we have to work multisystemically 
to affect recovery programs for children and young people like that. Thank you very much. Hello, uh, everyone, and thank you to both of the presenters so far. Um, my brain is, is uh, a mass with um, a wash with new thinking, and I'd love to get that uh, into our organisation. Um, my name is James Baderman. Um, I am here to talk about an organisation that I work for called Fight for Peace, or Lutabella Paz. Um, as you can tell by the, the two... As you can tell by the two names, uh, this is a great forum for us because we were born in Brazil, but we're now also in, in the UK, so this is the perfect setting for us to have a conversation. Um, unlike the organisation, I wasn't born in Brazil, so please excuse any poor pronunciation um, through this. Um, I'm going to uh, tell the story of the organisation, but not just to sort of explain what we've been doing, but to show how our methodologies, uh, firstly in terms of our service model, have, have evolved and developed, and then how we are um, sharing that model around the world. Um, so the issue that we work on is youth violence, um, and where we were started in Rio, that, that really means uh, young people's involvement in drug trafficking gangs, or living in communities where those gangs are, are present. Um, <clears throat> we're based in a community called Complexo de Mare, which is in Rio and is on the, air, the, the road, the highway between the airport and the city centre. Um, it's about 150,000 inhabitants. Um, when we arrived in Mare, when we started work uh, 14 years ago, there were three, um, three drug trafficking uh, gangs present, and that meant that there were um, uh, drugs openly sold on the streets. There were young people like those you see in the, in the middle picture um, with war-grade weaponry. Uh, and because there were three factions operating, there were also serious issues of freedom of movement and there were lines uh, uh, where territory was controlled by different groups that young people couldn't cross. Um, we're not a pacified uh, favela, but just before the World Cup, um, 3,000 troops arrived in, in the community, so that's where we're at at the moment. There's um, still a lot of weapons on the street, but at the moment they're, they're state weapons and not, um, not in the hands of traffickers. Um, our, uh, the first phase of our work we call uh, our instinctual phase. Um, it was an instinctual, instinctive response to a local problem. Um, our founder, a guy called, a guy called Luke, who lives in, lives in Rio, was a boxer. Uh, he was doing some um, research in, in a favela, not in Murray, but in another favela, and he, he literally walked around a corner and bumped into a 15-year-old with a Kalashnikov. And the 15-year-old the, the apologised and carried on. And this, for all sorts of reasons, had quite a profound effect on Luke. And Luke had, had boxed as a young person. It had really helped him through some issues that he was struggling with. So his instinctive response was to say, I'm going to set up a boxing club um, in, in, uh, to, to work exclusively with young people within gangs. And he, it was a very, very simple model for the first few years. It was, you'd come to boxing two or three times a week, and then once a month you would have a personal development session, as you can see um, in the, the right-hand picture. Um, we realised two things uh, during those first few years. One is that... Um, Combat sports are an incredibly good tool uh, to engage young people that are involved in violence. All, all sports and arts are, are, are good platforms to work from, but if you want to work with young people who are used to taking risks, are used to adrenaline, um, are used to a violent context, then um, setting up a, a, an engagement tool that's around, in their eyes, violence is a really effective way to get them through the door. Um, we now very, very deliberately uh, use combat sports for that reason. 
The second thing we realised that was, unless you're good enough to be a world champion, boxing's not going to change your life. And you need a whole range of other inputs to, to support you, especially if you're in a complicated environment like a favela and like, um, like a, a trafficking um, situation. So we set about um, finding out how we can work with young people to offer them a, a more kind of comprehensive uh, uh, set of opportunities and services um, to help them out of very complicated situations. And that was done over a sort of five-year period that we call our consolidation period. Uh, and it was done, in, importantly, um, yes, through academic research. So we, we published two books at the time, Children of the Drug Trade, which looked at uh, young people um, involved in Rio gangs. Um, we also looked at, in Neither War Nor Peace, our second piece, um, research we looked at young people in 10 other countries where they're involved in organized armed violence but while we were doing that we were also operating so we were constantly engaging the young people that were that were part of our services so those are the guys on the left um and we were we were basically uh looking for two things one was what are the what are the risk factors that are leading young people to decide to join gangs so what are the environmental contextual things that are in their environments that are meaning that they're choosing to join gangs but then we realised that actually there could, you know, not, not everyone by any stretch of the imagination, in fact a very small minority of young people join gangs. So what are the influences that are making them respond to those risk factors that are meaning that they're going to join gangs and how can we set up um, a series of counter influences that will help them to make a more positive decision? And I'll just very quickly run through what that means in terms of our methodology. So it, to, to offer different, to, to combat those risk factors by offering alternative responses um, to joining a gang, we have created what we call our five-pillar methodology. So boxing and martial arts um, still at the, at the core of that to get young people through the door, but then formal and informal education support. So if they're out of school, how can we get them to complete their education so they can move on? How can we get them prepared for the job market and in, into jobs so we have an employability pillar? Um, how can we support them with the psychosocial or legal issues that have been going on? So we have that are going on for them. So we have a social support services um, team and then youth leadership. How can we give them a voice within their community, within our project, within their lives um, that means that they can have more efficacy? Um, as a set of services, that kind of represents a whole great list of opportunities that they can go after. But in order to counter those influences that are leading them to make other choices, we wrap around that a very, very conscious and purposefully engineered uh, organisational culture and environment so that when they are around our staff or our, in, our, our, our space or in our classrooms that they're getting positive influences that help them to engage with those opportunities and take them up. Um, we realised as well the importance, we, we started working solely with, with traffickers and we realised that actually a much more inclusive approach was necessary if we weren't going to just replicate a, a very small um, kind of social grouping and labelling that was going on outside. So our programmes are open to anyone, not only just in our, in our community, but anyone. Um, and join, we have an open access policy. At the same time, we do, target, um, we do target young people that are most entrenched in trafficking situations, and there's lots of really interesting research coming out at the moment that if you want to decrease um, uh, uh, mortality rates and things like that, then really it is that top 1% one, one or 2% of, of, of people or young people that are pulling triggers and things like that. Th those are the guys that need to be targeted, um, but not in isolation. Otherwise, you're just recreating another um, sort of label in isolation. Um, and then just to, to finish on the model, um, we wrap around that uh, a theory of change um, that kind of keeps us on track. And that is um, that sort of states our belief that if you want to create concrete changes in a young person's life, if you want them to put down guns or leave a gang or 
go back to school or, or get a job and have the confidence to stay in a job, then you have to work on some internal factors. Um, we, lots of people categorise these in different ways. We, we work off three levels, changes in their self, improvements in their self-perception, uh, changes in their relationships with others, and changes in their thinking about the future, and their, their, their goals and their aspirations and their ability to, to dream of a positive and long future. Um, what's important, though, is that those two things are, are dynamic, those kind of concrete and, and um, personal uh, changes are dynamic. So as you support young people to accept, say, a job opportunity, you will then unlock a load of more potential for them to, to, to be more confident, to have better relationships. Equally, if you only work on the personal, but you don't provide opportunities to, to earn a salary or to complete their education, then uh, the changes might be short-lived. So that model um, lives in this building um, in, in Murray. Uh, so it's the sort of physical manifestation of that set of services and, and influences um, you walk in on the ground level, um, on the ground floor, and it's a, it's, it smells and feels and sounds like a boxing gym. Um, Olympic competitors have come out of there now. Uh, many national champions have come out of there now. And if you go upstairs, there's classrooms and there's computer labs and there's counselling suites. And if you go upstairs again, there's a dojo and, a, and, a, and an office space where we all work. Um, based on that kind of consolidated model that, uh, that, that kind of had a, a, a evidence base around it, um, we were asked to, to come to London. And we came to London in 1997, um, sorry, 2007, uh, and it was at the time when, in the media at least, uh, young people were being demonised. There were hoodies and knife crime and postcode wars and all of that kind of thing was all over the media. So um, there was obviously a need there, and we, we came and we've, we've got a centre now in Newham um, just by City Airport. And really for us, coming to London... Um, was about a couple of things. One was obviously that there was a need, but also that we thought if we can take something from Rio and put it in London, that's two incredibly different uh, scenarios. And if we can get proof of concept in both of those two places, then we're onto something really, really interesting here. Um, and it's working, which is great. I won't go through all of... We, we evaluate every year internally, and every, every other year we have an external evaluator come in, and we evaluate against the theory of change that we use, and things are going well. We are getting people out of gangs, we are getting them into sustainable futures and jobs and getting them to finish school. Um, with that evidence base and that, that sort of um, consolidated model, we had a really interesting conversation um, with, with funders around where, where can we go next? What is the, if you've got a model that works and works in two very different places, how can you take it to a real global scale? Um, and we thought about building more academies around the world. We thought about social franchising models. We thought about creating a manual and just making it open source. And where we've come to, um, and the, the next bit, I feel slightly intimidated by the next speaker because this is sort of social technology transfer, so I'm quite pleased I'm going first, actually. Um, where we've come to is, is a kind of three-layered, uh, three principles around, around uh, expansion. Um, the first is absolutely about finding local CBOs, um, community-based organisations, people that have permission and access and insight locally, not going as a, as a foreign organisation into, into a new place, um, and using those guys as an incredible resource. The, the, the picture is of a partner of ours in Sierra Leone. Um, it's a, a, a young self-help group uh, training in karate and helping each other find jobs and mentoring each other when they, when they find jobs. So finding organisations like that who know how to work with young people locally is, is a... Is a key part of what we do um, adaptation not replication if you, if you truly believe in the in the the resource and the ability that is local uh, grassroots organizations then going global shouldn't be about replicating your model it should be about asking them what they want from your model and adapting the model to be right um, 
in their context. And how do you share your model in order to achieve that adaptation piece? It has to be about principles, not about practices, or principles first and then practices. So we spent three years um, distilling everything we do into a kind of base-level um, set of principles that people could take to another, another context and, and sort of rehydrate with locally relevant um, practices. Um, how do we do that? So we, it's the part of Fight for Peace that I manage, um, we have a program called the Fight for Peace Global Alumni Program. It's a three-year program to train and support 120 organisations around the world. We go to cities where youth violence is an issue um, and we select between five and ten local organisations so that we have a chance to work in a community of practice and set up a community of practice. The, the guys in the photo here are from Johannesburg and New York where we have communities. Um, they all come to Rio. They all come to a, We don't take them to a conference centre. We take them into the favela. We train them in the favela. 92 organisations now have come into Murray. Um Many, many organisations won't visit us because of security concerns. We've never lost a day of training um, with these 92 organisations, and Murray has really become a sort of international seat of learning through this programme, which is wonderful. Um, they come down to Murray as a, a five-day training and everything we do, and then very importantly, it's backed up with 12 months of consultancy to say, OK, what of that is interesting and relevant to you guys? You're all local leaders. You know what you want from us. Let's adapt it. We have an online toolkit that has um, all of our monitoring and valuation processes, our curriculums, um, our bids, our, pro our proposals. It's entirely open source. Um, a lot of work on M&E development, uh, monitoring and evaluation development, really to try and help organisations to become investment ready. Um, and we share our brand and our evidence so that organisations that are working in isolation in some really, really tough communities all around, all around the world suddenly become part of a global organisation. So they go from incredibly local to, to part of something much bigger. And as I said, we create local communities of, of practice that um, can combine services, can combine on bids, can suddenly have a greater voice within their local um, uh, uh, frameworks. Um, uh, just a couple of stories to, to bring to life the sorts of organisations that we're working with. So as I said, we've got 92 organisations now that we've trained and supported and brought down to Rio to train uh, in 24 countries. Um, at the moment, we have a, a, um, a stress on sub-Saharan Africa and the Caribbean, but we've just put a team in Colombia, so we're, we're um, translating everything into Spanish, which is really exciting. Um, the top left picture is uh, from an organisation called Future Champs in the Cape Flats, in, in Cape Town, a guy who's worked out how to build um, community gyms out of um, community boxing gyms out of shipping containers. We're working with him to build classrooms on the side of all of these um, shipping containers so that when young people come in because they want to learn to fight better, uh, they also get introduced to education support. Um, the, uh, the picture at the bottom is from Nairobi, where we have 10 very active organisations there. Um, that's in the Korogotso community, which saw really, really bad violence after the 2007-08 elections. Um, we worked with a school in Korogotso to create a network of martial arts clubs and a roving uh, team of psychologists who, again, as kids were coming in to, to learn fight techniques, um, they were getting access to psychosocial support and especially support around helping them return to school. So that's a cross-community event there going on uh, between a number of clubs. And then lastly, uh, this is a Northern Irish uh, partner of ours called um, City of Belfast Boxing Academy. It's a, a terrible picture, but the, the, the big fence uh, in front of the houses is what, what they call a peace wall uh, between the two communities. The boxing club 
the back wall of the gym is actually the peace wall. Um, they have kids from both sides of the divide coming in to train and get access to education support. And their plan is to, to knock through the peace wall and have a door for uh, the community that normally has to walk around and suffer intimidation. So the most wonderful kind of symbol of peace is a, a boxing club with two doors uh, between a peace wall. Um, so to, to, to finish... Um, uh, in, in terms of what next for us, but also this, this, when we get a chance to talk at these kind of uh, places, the, the thing that we're trying to put out there, and it's been said a lot already, so I feel like we're definitely amongst friends, is how can we bridge the gap between, um, between frontline grass, grassroots CBOs and the investment and the policy community? But I, I guess I'd just push a little bit further and say how can not to organisations like those that appear here, or not only to, to us guys, because we, you know, we have 110 staff, we have a, a founder with an MBE, and you know, we have... Um, external evaluations going on. Uh, we are pretty connected. This, this gentleman here is from Nairobi. He's called Indurango. He used to smuggle guns into, um, into, into Nairobi. He was a don in, a, in, a, in the community that he now lives in. Uh, he had some kind of transformation, and he now runs a boxing club with an employability uh, program. He's a paralegal, um, and uh, he's a local peacekeeper. Um, but he hasn't got a computer. He hasn't got three years of accounts. He doesn't know... He doesn't, um, the funders won't visit his community because it's too violent. Uh, this is a picture of him in our gym in Rio uh, giving an interview to Fox Sports about his views on Kenya-Brazil relations. Um, we've managed to find this guy and connect him to, 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 to the sorts of worlds uh, that need to understand his insight. And, and if we're going to innovate and uh, create programming at scale, there are very many people like that that currently uh, aren't um, being accessed that can be the deliveries of, of um, those new programs, but they need investment. Um, so what we're interested in doing next is providing some kind of back office and investment channel um, where we can go out and find these organisations and we can kind of guarantee that funds will be well spent and will be monitored. Um, but we need uh, funders and we need corporates and we need um, governments to, to think creatively about how they, um, who they listen to and, and how they give their money out. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. I won't try to speak Shakespeare's language because I prefer to speak in Portuguese. I just want to say it's a great pleasure, it's a great honor to be here in London at LSE with people I've known for such a long time, some people I've just met and some people I'm going to meet, especially with Giza, with René, people I am with for a long time, people I've known for over 10 years. Camille, it's a great pleasure to sit next to you. James as well. It's a great opportunity. I just want to propose to show um, something interesting, I, I've come from advertising, so usually we have a multimedia presentation with high technology. I just want to propose to do something different, something simple, just something more human in this way. These people, these organizations we work with, we follow their example and other examples that we have seen today 
and especially in this case, Kufa and Afrohegi, they are part of my line for 14 years. And when we met with Sandra and Marlova as well once more in my life, I'm presenting her sister. We will be able to talk about these two organizations. We realized there was a great opportunity not only for these two organizations, that they could be any other organization in the world. They were there working against a silo without a voice, without a possibility to go beyond the walls of that community. They could see the world, participate in discussions, and for the press and the media to look at them and through the media, through books, through academia, these organizations, they could be seen in a more relevant way than they have been seen so far. So they are organizations that have inspired public policies. Also, they acquired funding, private funding, being inside slums, inside favelas, in the Brazilian cities. You can notice that I was born in Ipanema, Ipanema Beach. Ipanema Beach is a place where $15,000, up to $17,000, it costs the square meter. I was terrorized every day when I was 17, 18 years old by people like Giza in the middle of the street because I was raised in order to be afraid of people who lived on the streets. And behind my building, my compound, there's a favela do Cantagalo. It's on a hill with uh, some 20,000 people. And many people used to tell me, be careful, because if they come to your house, they'll take everything. So I was raised like that. I was raised in a bubble. In the south zone of Rio de Janeiro, this square meter is one of the most expensive in the world. I was always told, be careful with some people. Don't look at them. Ignore them. They are invisible because it's more comfortable. Listen to Tom Jobim, João Gilberto, playing Ipanema. Rio de Janeiro is a wonderful place. This is what we heard, it was our daily learning. Just forget Jesus. Don't look at her. Don't look at Hene. Up to when one, there was one day when I was working with a sociologist. It was an honor. It was the, the last year of his life. His name is Betinho. And it's a it was a honor, Teresa, um, to be here as well. And the uh, mini Secretary of State, Teresa, worked with him. So he placed us in a world as world leaders leading these issues. So we have some of the most important social programs. If Betinho was here with us, amongst us, Betinho would say, there's no more hunger in Brazil. And Betinho was the person who 
started this movement in Brazil, actions called Action for citizen, Citizenship Against Hunger and Extreme Poverty. And as an advertiser, I was beginning my career, I created a campaign that could talk about the importance to reduce extreme poverty and hunger in Brazil. I'm sorry with the numbers. I'm terrible with numbers. I think it was 15 years ago. So we created very interesting campaigns in, in Flamengo Beach. It's a very large beach in Rio. We had a seven-kilometer table to represent the excess of food and hunger and people who were hungry. So we were creating these actions. And I didn't know what was going on because I was taught by a long time to stay away from this reality but I was a professional uh, working marketing and advertising. I had to help. However, it was like a virus. It was a positive virus. So you begin to work and understand what's going on with you, these changes in vision. And then together with this organization, I began to work in a social project as a volunteer. I volunteered to participate. It was if this road was mining Laranjeiras. It had the partnership of Cirque du Soleil through Cirque du Monde, their social arm. And we invited the most violent young people in the streets where you could find a young violent man or woman we would bring to this house in Laranjeiras. It's a middle-class neighborhood in Rio. And through circus, we try to calm them down. So in a way, try to give them different values, talk to them, and just for us to, to step forward a bit. So um, I, was, I was not happy with that because I couldn't understand very well. So it was two different lessons being taught that two different discourses. So Bettinho was saying one thing, action for citizenship, what I was listening to in If This Road Was Mine, and also what I was told at home with my privileged uh, friends in Rio, in the south zone of Rio. So let's fast forward a bit. I was invited after many times, many jobs, to chair a foundation, the Roberto Marino Foundation, and after five years, to lead the direction of social projects of the largest communication networks in the world. It's the third largest one in, the, in Brazil, in the world, and it is located in Brazil. And I realized there was the possibility to go beyond rather than simply just communicating and talking about these social projects from our foundation. I believe that we had an opportunity to establish a dialogue with social movements, with the Students' Union in Brazil, which has always been very politically active. I remember Felipe Maia and other people, several leaders, we created uh, this student memory movement in partnership with the foundation and Global TV. Also, I've met a person who was very angry at Global, Celso Taidi, Mr. Celso Taidi, an MV Bill. Uh, he's a Jesus brother. 
And they used to say, we don't want to do anything with TV Global. We don't want any relationship with Global TV. But we have a documentary that may change this invisibility of children, young people in traffic in Brazil. So we have Falcão, the boy of traffic. So we had this relationship. I wasn't that person from TV Global. I was a friend of a friend. And then this possibility to say, look, if you don't show this documentary in Global TV, which it has, 80% of the audience, the share of the audience, you're going to talk to your families. So we have to create the conditions to really insert this documentary in the TV programs. And then... We did that. So then one and a half years later, Falcão, boy of the of drug traffic, he, he received many awards in Spain, several film festivals. But the most important thing, for the first time in the history of our country, and I remember this moment because I was coming down from a lift with Celso when they decided for the prize, and we were crying like little boys. We were sobbing because we knew that that move, that that moment, for a country that really saw these people as invisible, these children, these young people from favelas, they were something separately. It was like a big Brazil, and at that very moment. TV Global, the largest Latin America TV station, was showing for two hours in their prime time news Falcon, this documentary, which was the story of young people from favelas, from deprived areas. It was two years of work with images, testimonials from these young people. And one of these testimonials, and if you have the opportunity to watch, I think you can see on YouTube. And I think we can all see from YouTube. So in one of these testimonials, you can see a child that was being interviewed, about 12 years old. This child was living in a hole under a school. It was a hole, one by two meters. And in this hole, it was interviewed by MV Bill, the rapper, brother of Jesus, and... They were asked, are you not afraid of dying? You have, a, you have a gun. The gun is bigger than you. So are you not afraid of dying? And then this boy looked at that person and said, there's no problem. Tomorrow someone is going to replace me. So his reply was who was going to replace him, not with death itself. When MVP asked the question, he said, no, I'm talking about you. You can die. No, but it will be a relief. There's no problem. Therefore, this experience, this interaction with Afro-reggae, Kufa, drug traffickers, drug laws, and the students, social movements, then it, 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 it has given a meaning of my, for my life. I had a mission, the mission to try to understand this gap between communication networks, companies, and social institutions, and try to identify opportunities 
to have resources, how to generate resources, investment, visibility, especially visibility. It's a currency that is so important for social institutions for many years, Afro-Reggae, through Favela Risings, a documentary that talks about Afro-Reggae, their initiatives, Kufa initiatives, they have an office in the United States, now they have 27 offices in Brazil, 15 outside Brazil, because they're exporting social technology. So 15 years later, we have that, but why? Because at some point in the process, there was a TV showing these opportunities, these solutions, this new social technology that they started 15 years ago, and now they continue to develop. And also, we were trying to have as a board member my role for both institutions to identify opportunities for Procter & Gamble, we're heading two initiatives to provide the resources and say it has worked. Now we're going to be partners in the next five years. We're going to finance this organization and this organization, these projects for the next five years. We're going to carry them forward and we're going to try and develop this social technology partnership. And it was really interesting because on the first year, uh, there's a very interesting example of this, you know, being afraid of a favela. We created the Favela Cup. It was a football cup in Rio with 96,000 young people. So in this communication, showing this is good, this is important, the journalists can go there, it's not going to be shot, not going to be that, and, 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 and a supporter. So through the marketing of Procter & Gamble, I hope no one else is here from Procter & Gamble, we talked to the marketing department and we proposed that it should be called the Favelas Cup and then a new project that they started called Miss Favela. So we are going to choose a lady, a miss in the favelas, over 25,000 young girls. But they said favela, no, it's a bad name. It's a horrible name. We should say Kufa. And you can feel the resistance with the name because the, the, the person who lives in the favela, they love calling it a favela. They really don't mind. And I did promise that I was going to be less than 15 minutes what I would like to propose to you, and many people uh, who are here from different areas, is that we set up a committee, this is so common, to identify formats in one of the most respected universities in terms of public policies and volunteers to try and identify a way to measure, to prove, to find a way so the companies can, in a more secure way, invest in, in social activities through a number of multilateral organizations such as UNESCO with um, the universities and NGOs because it is only in this way by bringing about these NGOs as we have seen today just by providing resources to KUFA, to other organizations and other 
peace projects. Only in this way will we be able to develop new tech social technologies in which uh, in all of the 1,000 and over favelas in Rio, in Sao Paulo, and in other places in Brazil are able to become sustainable. It's a very short message. I think we can develop this a bit further, but I would like to identify ways for us to establish a, a, a small core which can develop this. There isn't something in the world. There's a huge gap between the needs and the mistakes of the companies who invest in the wrong ways because they're penalized by their own advisory boards and then they don't get the effective results. But there is an, a huge need for investments. NGOs today are receiving each time less investment, and they need this money. And this has always been my mantra, to connect institutions so that this intelligentsia, this thinking, this social technology which has been created by such amazing people and all of you can move outwards, perhaps out of the country and create public policy and bring in more private investments. We all need it and on the grassroots in the grassroots, these institutions need. This was my initial message, but we can talk about this a bit later on. Thank you. Good afternoon to all of you. Good afternoon. My name is Hene Silva. I'm 21 years of age. I live in a community Morda Days in the Complexo do Alemão, one of the communities, one of the complex of favela, one of the largest complex of favelas in Rio. And I started doing some uh, work in the area of the media that was very interesting because I was in a state school. And when I was 11 years of age, I asked the headmistress, what could I do to be part of a project, which was the school newspaper? And I asked the headmistress, how can I do to be part of this newspaper? Oh, you can't be part of it, she said, because it's only for 13-year-olds onwards that can be part of it, which was part of the, I don't know if you know what a Grêmio Studentil is, but it's a body inside the school, which is like a student union, which has a representative for the school and so on. So I asked the headmistress, and at the start she didn't allow me, and I kept insisting. I'd like to express myself. I'd like to talk about things. And I insisted so much, and talking to a number of teachers, she allowed me. She said, okay. I was 11. I had never had any access to Internet, to computer, I only received that access inside school, so everything was very new for me. But I, I am and was very curious, asking questions, wanting to know things. And so when I was 11, I got to the headmistress. Three months later, I said, I can see that the school newspaper, which was made out of paper, it was an A4 paper folded up. And I said, through this paper, we're managing to sort out some social issues in schools. For example, when we had lack of water, we put it in the newspaper and we sent it to our, our local authority. When we had problems, 
relating to the football uh, pitch. Uh, we put that information in the newspaper and we got some results. And we saw that we managed to sort out some social problems in this way. And I thought on my way home, and I was thinking, I saw loads of social problems. And I thought, why not create a newspaper like the school for the community? And so the social programs which go on, what the large media doesn't show, talk about our day-to-day life, which for us is very common, for example. There's a rubbish truck that comes in and they go through a load of open air rubbish and lack of sanitation, lack of water. And we think all these things are normal. We get used to these things, as you were saying before, about shooting, about gangs. Children get used. It's the same. We get used to our situation. And I thought, why don't we create a newspaper where we can show these social problems to the government, to the businesses, to see what what is happening in these places. I started taking photographs. I didn't have a mobile. I didn't have a a computer. I started borrowing from friends. Uh, camera. Then I gave an interview from a uh, TV station, and I managed to receive a cameras. Then I bought my first computer in 48 installments. And at the time, in 2005, it wasn't so accessible to have a computer. So I started to, when I didn't have a computer at home, I used to go to my neighbor's house to access the internet, and I started to ask questions. How can I do this? I am curious. I want to know how to work with this. I want to do something. And so I always I always wanted to read newspapers. I've read my grandfather's newspaper, and I was reading, and I noticed that social problems weren't out in the newspaper. When somebody got shot, a bad thing happened, then it was there. And this could have affected the rest of, uh, of society. But our own problems, our day-to-day, this wasn't happening. And so I started showing. I was taking a picture. My headmistress gave all her support. Yes, you're going the right way. We're going to support you. And so I started going. And then at the end of the year, at the end of that year, I received a school grant because of the newspaper. It was from a private school. And inside the school, I started showing things that were happening in the community, and my headmistress again supported. I can help you with the printing. I can put some uh, marketing, advertising, so that you can start buying your computer. And so she started helping me out, encouraging, and my newspaper started growing. And then I was growing up. I started to get older and older, 14. I started to get old. And then... When I was about 17 in 2010, something happened which was unexpected within Complex Alemão. The, the invasion of Complex Alemão, when the whole world was following this, I don't know if you remember, but it was uh, news all over the world because TV Global, the main TV radio station, was showing this live, the invasion of Complex Alemão. And I had gone to this private school, and because I had my newspaper, I started knowing other people outside. And so through social networks, through Twitter, I I knew people who 
followed me. So people were concerned and I was, how are you? Is everything safe? I can see what's going on. There's been some shooting. Are you fine? Can you, do you want to come here? People from other places started to ask me. And they were concerned about this, what they were seeing on the TV. And so I started answering. I answered one, I answered two, and then when I saw my followers, because I had 600 followers, when I went to Updave, I had 1,500 people following me, and I thought, 15, sorry, 1,000 people following me. I had 500 before. And I saw that if my friends were asking me how it was, they started sending information to TV stations, to newspapers, to journalists, to famous people. Follow this boy. He lives in the community. And so journalists, TV uh, stations, and people from various places in the world started to follow me. And I had 15,000 followers. And, and I said, how am I going to be able to answer all these people? They were asking questions. I was talking to my friends. And then suddenly I go and see how many mentions I get. 600 new mentions. This had not happened to me before. And I, what is happening? And I noticed that the questions were always the same. People wanted to know what was happening in the complex. Are you well? Are you safe? So I started to publish through my Twitter. It wasn't my intention. Perhaps if I had uh, planned invasion is coming, I'm going to publish everything that's going to happen here. Perhaps it wouldn't have repercussed in this way. But because it was a natural thing, people were saying, following this boy, follow this boy, and they started to follow me. And it started to become news in various newspapers. My family got worried. And when I opened the main newspaper sites, they were all saying, um, a resident from favela is publishing what's happening live. A uh, complex Alemán resident talks about the shooting. And my family was very concerned because they were already concerned because of the, uh, the printed paper. Because I live in a community where there's still drug trafficking and the police is there and there's shooting. And my family, they were very concerned, very worried, like any other family. Yeah, you safe, you need to be careful, don't publish this or that. And they didn't know that I'd done this via the internet. And so they were watching telly, and then suddenly there's my face on the telly. There were people talking, and it said, and a journalist says, the resident from Complex Alemão is publishing everything that's happening. And my family looked at my face and said, what's happening? And I said, leave your computer right now. You're not doing this anymore. And I said, People are worried about me. If I stop publishing, they will think something happened to me. And so I carried on publishing. I went to the sofa with my mobile. I said, okay, I'll leave the computer. But I was in my mobile. I was still posting what was going on. And during the day, I started changing. I started growing in the social media. Uh, from 15,000, we now have 35,000 following us. And it had come out in all the sites, all the papers, in order to show our social problems. So what did I do then? 
I was doing a, a printed newspaper, and it was taking a long time to take a picture of a sewage system, the lack of water in a certain place, people complaining, until it went out to be printed, to be distributed. This took a long time, and I said, why not use these people, 36,000 people, to make this thing work faster? And I knew that we're near Christmas, so I put a photograph for a number of residents with a Father Christmas heart so that they could pave a road. And in the afternoon, there was already somebody fixing the road. And this ha is still happening today by the fact that today we have in Twitter 160,000 followers. And it's interesting to see that even after the invasion, people carry on following me. Thousands of people follow me. Today, it's five times more the number of people who followed me, who had um, followed me on real time during the invasion. But these people still want to know what is happening, what is the situation, what are people experiencing, what they eat. So it's very interesting. And we end up, in a way, helping to change the image that people have of the favela, of violence, of the children suffering. And we put a new positive image of happiness, of what people, how people are living, what is the situation, that people are suffering on one side, but they're happy on the other hand. And so to show this contrast, and on TV Global, somebody who then became a very good friend of mine, uh, a soap opera that, um, writer, Gloria Perez. I knew her through Twitter, and I said, I'm going to write a soap opera. And one of the things I'd like to put is Complexo do Alemão, where René is going to be our main character. Am I going to become a, a soap opera character? And she said, I'd like me to, I'd like you to participate. So I said, okay. So I started to participate, and I showed through the soap opera, the this, this social work, the side that the media doesn't usually show, the side that people don't know because the main media doesn't show. And now the main media starts to having to show this because we're doing this with so many followers that the main media is then forced to publish this as well. Because when we publish this situation and these things are going on, other people who are following starting to say, in what's happening the, the, to the new big uh, stations like Global and Report, Look what the community is saying. So they're being pressured to talk about certain issues they didn't used to talk about. And my objective is to carry on giving voice to communities of showing these social programs, what's happening in this community. Today I have at, uh, 60 volunteers working for me in various activities because apart from the newspaper, from 2005 since I started, I started in August 2005. In, two, in December, I did a Christmas action, getting some food baskets, and I used my newspaper to um, get funding and, and donations. And this is still happening, this uh, Christmas um, activity. And we are reaching uh, a larger number of people in various places of Brazil, in other cities as well started to replicate these actions. So I think this is this. Thank you very much for being here, having the opportunity to participate. Thank you very much.
my nasty little piece of paper away. Um, thank you, everybody, for um, really energising and, uh, and diverse and informed uh, talks, brought together a lot of uh, issues, struck by the similarities in some of the experiences, um, but also many of the kind of differences, um, both in, in sort of methodology and, and obviously life experiences with and behind them. Um, I, we have a little bit of time. I think, can I steal some time from coffee? Uh, a few minutes One of, to add a few questions into the list. If people uh, would like to uh, make a comment, by all means, do so, but be brief or to pose a question to any or all uh, of, of the speakers. And if so, show your hands now and a microphone, possibly even a working microphone. We'll, we'll get to you uh, in some shape or form. Yes, in front there. If you could say who you are as well, that would be... Sure. Hi, I'm Dana. I'm getting my master's in uh, social and cultural psychology here at LSE. Um, and I thank you all very much for everything you had to say. I found this panel very interesting in contrast to the first panel earlier. And I'm wondering, open to any of you, what you would hope to see for your, your specific organizations and initiatives, but also your communities at large, what you would hope to see from the policy world and more the political side, what would help you to accomplish what you're hoping to accomplish? Was that audible? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think one of the most terrible things that's happening is... Um, uh, you want me to oh. talk into a mic, but I'm so loud. <laughs> I think you have to then press... Hello, lovely translators. <laughs> For you, I will speak into a mic. <laughs> um, one of the things that's very worrying and is emerging is the world of um, funders, a lot of funders, are creating outcome narratives, i.e. what they ask projects to do and achieve as success, which is actually distorting uh, really, really complex work. And what I'd like to, for, for us to have is a dialogue where those of us who work at street level and in complex neighborhoods can actually work with these people to create more meaningful outcome narratives um, rather than be told like little dogs that we need to come up with A, B, and C, otherwise we won't get their money. Uh, so we need to flip the intellectual power the intellectual power doesn't always reside with the person who's got the money, and that's what's got to change. Sometimes the power can be where the poor are too, and we need a bit of respect. I think as I took that as a question for, for everybody, I don't know if... Uh... No, I think we should have lots of questions because okay. they haven't spoken. Sure. Yeah. No, I know. We speak uh, too much. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> Are there more questions before there can we be We should more have a answers? few questions. Um, <clears throat> my name is Misha Glenny. I'm writing a book on uh, Rossini in Rio at the moment. Um, whilst I yield to no person in my respect for all of the work that the, uh, the panellists are doing... I feel we may have dodged, certainly this morning we did dodge, a central issue for Brazil, which is the issue of drug policy reform, because the primary driver of violence in its uh, extent 
certainly in, in Rio, but I would argue elsewhere, particularly now in the northeast of Brazil, uh, is drug policy. Um, unlike Argentina, Colombia, uh, Mexico and Uruguay, Brazil is seeming to be quite resistant to drug policy reform. And I just wondered whether the panel agree that this is an issue which has to be addressed if you want to avoid being involved in Sisyphean activities. Okay. Hold your thoughts. If there are any other questions... I want to talk about drugs. It is... I agree with you, with your comment, because... I've been through that in my life, and I face that, I live that. People that I knew very well yesterday, now they're involved in drug trafficking or they have been killed. And I was able to work in health, show to health professionals, say that it's it's uh, it's it's horrible for a country that has evolved so much, but it cannot deal with the issue of drugs as a social factor that we cannot control or a, a case of a psychiatric problem. And sometimes they think it's a psychiatric issue using medicines, people who are especially are addicted to crack cocaine. And we don't debate this issue. We don't have solutions for this issue. We don't have public policies for these issues. When we have, it's going to continue to follow other policies that we have in Brazil. So everything is hidden. If there is something that is innovative, if there's an innovative solution, this solution must be mainstreamed. We should know, we sh and the whole society should be aware of it, because we need to really use this policy. We can't have these hidden good solutions. So we need to mature in this issue, and I want to contribute with my experience in my family, in my daily life, with the young people I work with. Many of them, they are facing drug issues, and they can... Um, treat their addiction, some others they can't. We have a lot of people. This week I was on the bus and I met two young people who were in City of God, a film which was really a success. They were selling uh, sweets. They had taken drugs. They were dirty. They were not well because of drugs. So they couldn't follow their dream because of drugs. So it is a serious issue. I don't think that... Um, I can connect drugs with violence. Violence is lack of security, lack of safety, lack of strategies, less corruption between the police, within the police. So I think we need to discuss that as well, and sometimes that's connected to drugs as well. But we need to talk about it. And I'm not just criticizing, but I'm saying I'm available for Brazilian politicians to discuss that, to talk about it, and try and find solutions. But this is a truth. It's a fundamental truth that we need to change in our country. I just want to say, 
of I just want to mention a partnership with Kufa and President Dilma about the crack cocaine policy to fight against crack cocaine. So the president herself she was working with some NGOs and Kufa. It's a challenging issue all over the world. We face it around Brazil in Rio. We see around the corner the hill, a favela, and we see that very close to us. So we see that side by side. So it's very important to remember that whoever uses drugs, they are financing that system. And the great consumer, they live in the very rich areas in the city, in Ipanema, where, there's where most of the consumers are. Therefore, in this way, we need to really have good policies. So Hossin is very close to where I live. So it's 500 meters from where I live. And I'd like to say that I can put you in touch with people or the organizations that are working to really incentivize public policies to discuss this issue. But I think we need to face this issue. And I believe that this dialogue between KUFA and the federal government is helping. I think we are going for a transition phase. There was so much for us to fix in Brazil, and I think that maybe we need to really give focus to this issue. Uh, my name is Ed. I work with communities in Rio. Thank you very much. My question is because in Rio we face violence. There's the violence by the state against black people, people in the favelas, in Maré. It, it's a horrible situation. So the young black person really faces a difficult situation. Do you think there's going to be a change in the future? Or what can we do to improve living conditions in the favelas and this perception of young black people? Um, Hello, everybody. My name is Christine Mitch, and I work with Kids Company. I've been really um, encouraged by the discussions that have been going on this afternoon. Particularly, I like the call for corporations to get involved um, in a positive manner. My question to the panel is, have you considered what do we offer these young people? How do we get them to exchange their lifestyles? We're, telling them, we're saying, let's get them educated, let's get them a house, put some clothes in them. But the young people that I meet, they have these aspirations which are given to them by what they're seeing in what has become the new celebrity world. How do we bring them back into the reality of daily existence? Into, into really, not to kill their dreams, but actually, no, everybody does not become a celebrity star and not everybody becomes a super footballer. How do we manage their aspirations? What are we offering to them to make them give up the drugs and that notoriety? Thank you. Uh, ask Rene to speak first. Okay. So you asked about violence in the favelas, the situation in Marais, in Alemão, 
And I talk to many young people who are involved or have been involved in the situation. And what I see, it's lack of uh, education or being education and in the, in the education, the education system, there's some failures. And what we need more and more is to really in, talk about politics in schools. We have history, but we don't talk about politics. In our students group, uh, when I started with the newspaper, we didn't talk about uh, politics, how we are going to elect our representatives. We did it because we were doing like that for a long time, but it wasn't something that we learned. Therefore, I think we need to explain, educate people, and I also think we have to work together through uh, your life. If Since childhood, if we show reality to people, to young people about drugs, about violence, you know, pregnancy, uh, in teenage years, the social problems, and also take uh, former drug trafficking people and police officers to talk to students and children. This is going to help these human beings. We're going to have a new generation of human beings. So through education, we can change society, in my view. It's company is setting our young people up in businesses. Um, so either finding them employment by building up relationships with companies. So we've got relationships with about 270 companies that we feed our young people into in terms of employment, if they can do that. But also the truth is that some young people, when they've had that level of violation and challenge, don't manage very well in normal employment settings. So we set them up in their own businesses, and some of them have been doing really well. But our problem is that we don't have the funding because kids are coming to us directly. No one will pay in terms of local authorities for the help these children receive. So we're limited in what we can do financially, but not in terms of uh, possibilities. Finally, in relation to the drugs, I think we have to be very careful to blame any one illegal activity for social difficulties. Because once you remove the drugs out of this situation, another kind of underground economy will evolve. And when you have underground economies, they're driven by violence because they can't be policed through legitimate legal means. Consequently, I think we have to go one step before that and say if you took the drug economy out of some of these neighborhoods, and bear in mind that the drug economy turns around more money than the oil industry, what are you going to replace it with as a substitute economic model? Because until you do that, you don't have a right to take away uh, a means of survival that a community has resorted to, however horrible that means may appear to the rest of us who are participating in a different kind of economy. And think about it. If someone came and shut all your banks, you'd be pretty horrified.
Uh, eu queria só dar meu parecer sobre uh, ele falou sobre a questão da I would like to talk about the death of a number of black people of violence we have seen this reduced as you can see in a number of issues questions to do with development it has been reduced but we still have a lot to do and controlled we need that there's much debate to be done and many attitudes to be changed so we need in a number of areas in a, with the people we know that our behavior deals with the way with our behavior as well the politicians but we can see that the more we talk about these issues the more we expose like Renee's been showing the situation more people will become aware of their own situations and are not just thinking about a life that everything is beautiful. I only came to know myself when I realized that I wasn't just here to be just another black person like that, that I needed to have something more. I needed to speak better. I need to face more, have something to say, have to ask, have education. All this brought me a new way of thinking, a new way of behaving. But when you don't accept and you don't want, you could fight, you could even die, but you will die in a dignified way because you expressed yourself and you fought for those things you believe. And this is what I want to encourage. People who believe in themselves, who don't accept to be treated in a different way, that they are treated with respect by everyone, by those people who live in their communities, by the government, by people outside the community. And to have respect, you also need to, res to treat people with respect. And this is what I want to encourage black, young people, uh, poor people, because in the favela we have everything mixed, black and white. And so we have to pass these things in face of these situations. And in relation to Mira, who's been talking about young people who becomes so amazed by the world. We work with sport, we, spoke, uh, we work with hip hop, and we, the children really do think, oh, I'm going to be somebody so great, I'm going to make some changes. But by giving a continuity to a project so that they can carry on and do and do and do and choose their way of life, that as a citizen, he has a number of opportunities and, and options. He sort of gives up this idea of, of celebrities of, wow, yesterday I was singing on stage and now I just talk. So uh, I talk a lot. So there's no thing, oh, Jesus, do you remember those times? Do you miss those times when you used to sing rap? What I wanted wasn't to become famous. Of course, I, I, I can choose and, and measure my own um, desires. We need to understand that. But I've always been self-contained. But I have also have been young, full of, and I still think I'm young, full of desires and wishes. But I'm always controlling myself in relation to this. But I left the stage for something that I also believe beyond the stage. We make choices. We, I don't do everything that I want to do, but we come to meet a, a, a point of view where it can meet my desires. So I gave up the stage to go into social um, a, a struggle, which meets me much more to travel the world, to sing, and etc. has always been part of my dreams. But it's just my voice that I have today that will make a difference to the world. 
And so the opportunity of doing projects gives the young people the chance to say you may be playing basketball today, you may win with your team, you might get first place, but tomorrow you have to go to work and meet all your duties just like any other work. And this is what we're trying to put through. Tomorrow you might be able to to start a business selling sportswear. So we're trying to bring the idea of becoming a businessman and expanding the opportunities for these young people so that they can shine not just on stage but everywhere else. One more quick round of questions or comments and then we'll, we'll wrap up and comments. grab some coffee. I would like to comment the happiness for us at UNESCO to listen to a, a roundtable that has this quality and this diversity. This was called Multiple Voices, and I think you have done very good work. Thank you very much. Congratulations to all. Thank you very much. Thank you. I think poder reunir vozes múltiplas de várias perspectivas e idades diferentes, backgrounds diferentes, é realmente um privilégio. E acho que a contribuição que vocês trouxeram aqui, ela é uma contribuição muito importante. It's very important to have this dialogue between Brazil and United K because it gives us the similarities. We have these challenges faced by several countries and I want to give two contributions. First, instead, about crack cocaine. In the city of São Paulo, which is the largest city in uh, in the mayorship of Fernando Haddad, has developed a program for f dealing with crack, which has been recognized by the World Bank. It's an exemplary program. We are in partnership with Luciana Temer from the mayorship. And the results have been very good. As you know, crack is one of the most devastating drugs, perhaps one is that is most difficult to deal with. And the program that the city of Sao Paulo has together with UNESCO and the World Bank and the Health Department has seemed to be very effective. It's still a pilot project, but we hope that these outcomes can be taken to a larger scale because the first uh, tests seem to be very positive. And the second comment I would like to make has to do with the question about the death of black people, young people in Brazil. And this is one of the greatest challenges that Brazil has. UNESCO has just published a map of violence. And the death in Brazil does have geography, does have face, does have color and does have interest. Most drugs, most deaths in Brazil are black people between 17 and 25 years. They live in the favela, in the suburban areas. They have low education and they are poor. They have low income. But at the same time, the federal government has designed a program called Juventude Viva, Living Young Youth, of which we're also partners, hoping to deal with the death of young black people working in the most vulnerable um, situations 
in communities which are suffering um, in violence. And I was very interested in looking at Camilla's methodology because part of this conversation has the welcoming of these young people, bringing back um, self-esteem, returning to school, moving them away from violence, from drug, from traffic. But without a doubt, this is a problem, and we need to deal with this. Unfortunately, our government is aware of this and dealing with the death of young black people. And I think that Brazil today is a country that is very big in terms of where solutions are very difficult because of the size. Everything in Brazil, as you can see from um, the Secretary of State's speech, when she's talking, you can see, my God, you're talking about a huge amount of people. You're talking sometimes about numbers which are the population of a single country. So the problem sometimes is the dimension of these programs. And what I would like to finish by saying is when we're here in LSE, uh, in, a in a seminar like this, is bringing to is the importance of bringing together everybody to deal with these problems. The Secretary of State said that the government cannot give up the idea of universalizing access to public policies, because when we're talking about universal access, only government can be uh, providing an answer. Universalization, a country like Brazil, depends on the political will and public policy. But on the other hand, the lessons that NGOs give us, that grassroots uh, organizations give us, are important for building quality public policies. And in the same way, the private sector, in their support to these programs, helps us to show how important pilot projects can be a model for public policy. So I am very happy for everything that's happening here. I would like to thank, in the name of UNESCO and on my own person, this fantastic table we had today and the table we had um, this morning and take these examples that inspire us and makes us sure that we can make the world a better place, more, much more inclusive, more fair. Thank you. May I recommend that you consider looking at the death of young black men also in Britain? I'm getting signals from the back, and I'm not quite sure what they are. <laughs> Short-sighted, and as I am. É a última pergunta. Eu vou fazer em português. The last question I would like to say in Portuguese. It's very, very short and quick. I, I'm sorry to delay coffee. I'm in Brazil. I'm Brazilian. It's a very interesting debate. So my comments from a personal perspective, I've been seeing Brazil's social development in the last few years. And also I'm very concerned because I see that in parallel, simultaneously to this social development, I see a conservative reaction from Brazilian society, and that horrifies me. We see this 
polarization in relation to social issues, a society that was very uh, uh, liberating and open and diverse, multi-ethnic. We can see with this social development uh, because this population now they are not invisible anymore. It has opened um, other issues that Brazil didn't know that they were facing. And from a distance, we can see that very clearly. So I want to see from the panel members if you can... Tell us, how do you see that? Because we talk about communities, um, people who are disadvantaged, but we don't talk about the society as a whole, how they behave, and how they work to improve things together. A question in the next century. It's very big. <laughs> <laughs> Not in the next two minutes. No. <laughs> that seems like a good idea. I think there's... Uh, I wanted race to become front and centre, and I was really glad when it was eventually uh, in, in this meeting, front and centre. I'm glad we got happiness in there as well. I'm often quite pleased when Conservatives are agitated and go public because it shows that they're worried by something, and I think if people and civil society are no longer shy... Uh, as it was explained uh, by Gisèle in, in her first comment, if I translated it correctly... I think that's generally a good thing, and reaction to anything like that is, is uh, in itself uh, quite, a, uh, quite an expose of, of people's inner psyches and, uh, and, and concerns. So I think we'll, we'll leave there, thanking uh, all five speakers for provocative and, uh, and diverse presentations, and uh, we have eaten into or drunk into coffee rather more than I'd anticipated, but please, um, Phil... One more comment. Only because it's you. Just to do final considerations because we have a short time, so we should speak shortly. I like closing, giving my closing remarks. Thank you very much. I'm on the internet. I have a Facebook page, Negajiza, N-E-G-A-G-I-Z-Z-A. Also, we have C-U-F-A, our portal, Central Unica de Favelas. We, we are around the world. And please check my Facebook page. I talk to everyone. Please find me, ask anything. Thank you. Kisses, kisses.